Welcome to the Rip Hard Podcast by guitarists for guitarists. And now your hosts, John Brown and A.L. Levy. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. We've been running conversations with some of the best guitar players in the game for over a year now. Not only has this been amazing for myself and A.L. to learn from, but it's been amazing for us to share this vast knowledge with all of you. If you enjoy what we're doing, then please share us with your friends, and we especially love iTunes reviews. Remember that you can tag us if you want to share the podcast on your Instagram. You can find me at Brown Monuments. That's B-R-O-W-N-E-M-O-N-U-M-E-N-T-S. And you can find Al at Al Levy URM Audio. That's E-Y-A-L-L-E-V-I-U-R-M-A-U-D-I-O. Always remember that we will never charge you for this podcast. So please keep listening and enjoying. All we ask in return is a share, post, and a tag. Anyway, let's get on to this week's guest. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. Our guest today is Nick Rossi, who is a newer addition to the band Born of Osiris. And uh, he actually joined first on bass and then moved on to guitar. Nick is actually a uh, Riff Hard member and a great, great guitar player. This was a cool conversation. I hope you all enjoy it. Nick Rossi, welcome to the Riff Hard podcast. Thank you guys so much. I appreciate you having me. Hello, Nick. How are you? Great. How are you guys? Doing well. First of all, just want to say that I'm an asshole, but <laughs> I didn't realize that you were uh, in the Riff Hard community. So I, uh, I think it's cool that that you've been in there so yeah um, no i appreciate it i actually uh i think your guys good friend kieran he got me on board recently so it's only about maybe a month or two ago and i did one of the uh the shred roll riffs which was I really saw. sick yeah that was a lot of fun yeah thanks for doing that that was cool yeah thank you guys yeah so speaking of that as you know and as uh you know that we like to talk about you got to have a fucking solid picking hand you know to survive in music but especially in metal i'm just wondering if there's anything specific that you do to be able to hang to hang with your band and just hang with the genre yeah definitely i mean i feel like you know like you said the right hand is so crucial especially in this genre and i feel like brown you can relate like you know i think sometimes like i've seen the down picking thing is like you know i started playing metal i don't know when i was 13 or 14 so and you kind of just like latch on to how crucial that is right off the bat and start building up the muscle memory and sort of taking it from the get-go and i think like for a while i was like oh man like i, f I almost saw the down picking as like a curse i was like oh, i'm just so caught up in down picking but then i sort of flipped the mindset and started being Wait, like what do you mean by curse just because like i would find myself like trying to you know work on other techniques and everything and i would and having played metal for so long and 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 working on that right hand i would find myself like you know working on more fluid solo kind of things or uh things that are less riffy i would find myself falling into this down picking kind of pattern i'd be like oh i I've, i'm feeling like i'm struggling a little bit with uh you know maybe more alternate picking or, or more legatos kind of stuff and i was getting frustrated with that for a bit but then i was like well Maybe I should just use this to my advantage and really try to hone in on this. And then uh, when I kind of started taking that approach, it was like, 
less stressful, I guess you could say, instead of like, <laughs> instead of like being like, oh, I got to like rework on my technique and, and think about all these other people that are doing all these other awesome things. And why are they better than me? And why are they getting all these fluid things smoother than me? I was like, well, this is my thing. I've just been working on this for so long. And I think like, yeah, just kind of honing in and, and being like the right hand and the down picking approach and being powerful and just working on that muscle memory kind of leads you to having a certain style. And I've, so now I'm like hyper focused on it where it's like I'm just trying to down pick as much as I can when I'm playing my riffs because it sounds more badass and it sounds more powerful. And uh, yeah, I think it's cool. It's interesting that you said that it uh, fucks with your alternate picking. Because at least for me, I found that when I got better at down picking, I got better at alternate picking too. Because, you know, you have to come back up to be able to set up your next downstroke. So uh, for me, yeah, it is a different technique. But I found that down picking was one of those things that helped everything for me, at least. Yeah. And I mean, you're definitely right. And I think like, I guess I say more in the sense of like, solo and lead playing and whatnot oh yeah yeah it's like you know these guys some of these guys have this crazy super smooth legato technique and i think that's certainly a little bit different yeah definitely but you are right because you need that you need that alternate pick i mean there's some things you just that aren't going to happen down picking when you want to gallop and all that of course you need the alternate so i don't know i think it's more of like a mindset shift for me just just being like what am i what are my strengths and playing to those and always growing and evolving rather than thinking about where i'm lacking and then you know, kind of balancing that because there's so many good players out there. It's like, how do you navigate through the stream? You know, <laughs> that's a, that's an interesting philosophical question right there is do you focus on your strengths or focus on your weaknesses? Uh, and I've heard people give really great arguments for both. Right. Right. And of course you want to work on the weaknesses. I think about this a lot where it's like now we're in the modern age and we have social media and you can see every person playing and, I think like that's why I love what you guys do so much with the with the community and everything because it brings people together and it like brings back fun and like excitement to guitar and and instead of like this competitive nature it's more like whoa that guy's doing something awesome I didn't consider that you know maybe I can take something away from what he's doing or more of just like a community hey we're all just having fun playing music mindset rather than let's grind each other to a nub and try to race each other to the death sort of thing yeah the thing that i noticed with the internet you know in the first decade or so of video becoming the thing and the way that uh we discover guitar players is been i noticed this on the urm side too shit became a battlefield out there and i mean before that because i you know i was a teenager in the 90s and i remember that stuff it's not like shit was cool then between people People were still assholes to each other then. Right. It's not like people were cool before the internet. They were fucking dicks always. But with the internet, I think that it allowed people's shittier natures or the bad sides of their personalities that allowed it to come out unrestrained because of anonymity and also lack of proximity. I think that that has psychologically damaged a lot of musicians. Yeah. But so with Riff Hard, like, and with URM, we're not saying that there's no competition or anything like that. Of course, it's a competitive thing. Uh, you want to get better. And obviously, your biggest competition is yourself. But I feel like there's a way to do it to where, like you said, it's fun. And it's not about 
decimating everybody else or tearing them down. Like you can get awesome and still make friends and have fun and help each other out. And you know, people that are going to get great, are going to get great anyways. And everyone's going to notice anyways. Comparing to another guitar player is such a toxic mentality overall Mm -hmm. because everyone's different. You know, we're never going to write the exact same music. Any one of us, it's always going to have our stamp on it. And just because one person's good at legato doesn't mean that you couldn't get good at legato as well. It will just be different and it will never be the same. And you will always compare yourself to that guitar player, regardless of how good you get. So I think that focusing on strengths is a really good way to sort of get over that feeling of, you know, saying, oh, Guthrie Govan's better than everyone on the earth. But, but, you know, um, there's no point comparing to something like that. I agree with you. Like, I definitely think you should focus on your strengths, like as a person too, Yeah, you know, in business, just like with how we run stuff, the thing that makes things work is letting everyone in the company do what they're best at and not getting in the way of that. But with guitar, I did notice that even if I wasn't necessarily comparing myself to other people, like there was a time period where I had a real hard time playing to a metronome. I identified that and fixed it. You know, that's an example of focusing on a weakness and really bettering myself as a result. Cause if you can't play in time, you're kind of fucked. Yeah, absolutely. So so I think there's a there's a fine line. There are some weaknesses that that I think you should focus on if you objectively need to work on something. But uh at the end of the day, it's your strengths that are going to make the difference yeah i agree I, th- I think it's just so important to like exactly what you said like have that healthy competition and, and build each other up and everything but yeah it's it's about building each other up instead of tearing the other guy down and and i think you know one guy that excels at one technique can share that with the other and then you know everyone just learns from each other and you know it, that crosses over to everything it's like if we all just communicate a little more and open up and use the internet for the good that it can provide, then I think everyone just ends up better off and happier in a better place. So I just think it's human nature to not want to do that though. You're like, you know, I know it's horrible. <laughs> That's why with like the groups, we have to enforce rules and have moderators and all that. Because if you don't do that shit, man, people just get savage. Like, it's brutal out there, man. <laughs> the thing that's interesting about it, though, is it's not that some people are total assholes and other people are really nice when it comes to this kind of stuff. Because I have noticed that people that are in the URM Riffhard community that are real cool in there, outside of there, like on YouTube or in other groups where there are no rules, they act like monsters. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. so, so yeah, I, I think that you can get people to be cool, but you have to, you have to set up some expectations. Yeah, definitely. And even just like, you know, cause you're not, you don't see anyone on the internet. It's just words and stuff. So it's easier to, you know, put your mean guy face on when, when there's no face to see, I guess. So. And also it's to do with how people interpret text as well right yeah it's like you don't know what someone's saying like how are they saying it i don't know i can't hear you you can't pick up on the language of it you know like the actual like whether they're screaming it or whether they're just saying it in the nicest voice ever i know i know (laughs) 
<laughs> but they could be really offensive and you wouldn't even know. Or maybe you take it as offensive and it's not meant to be. It's just that the order of the words somehow managed to trigger you. I know. It's crazy. It's wild, man. But yeah, I just having a sense of community is really important, especially in music. It's like people forget that sometimes, I think. And uh, I've always just been a huge advocate for that. Just trying to build up other players and learn from them. I don't want to lose sight of that. It's very important to me. So well, I think with metal specifically, that's uh, kind of built into the metal culture already. I'm not sure that that exists in lots of other genres. Like I think maybe it does in some electronic genres. Mm-hmm. I'm not so sure that there are these types of communities necessarily. There's something about metal that lends itself to a community somehow. It always has. I think probably because it started as music for outcasts. Yeah, I know everyone kind of bands together because they're being, you know, exactly kind of pushed out on the edge. And so they all come together. But I fully agree. There is something about metal that just has this powerful camaraderie around it. What do you think it is? Maybe it's because of the extremities of it, I guess. You know, for the average person, maybe they find it to be... It's like this barrier you have to break through, I think. It's like, if you don't get it, then, you know, the the average person is just like, I don't, I can't understand what they're saying. All the classic things that people who don't listen to metal say about metal. But then you get into it and it's like this whole new world. And I think when there's that appreciation for it, it kind of like just brings this cohesive bond together. I mean, what do you guys think? My first experience understanding how the rest of the world understood it was in high school or something, like in some class where the teacher was trying to be cool and have everybody like one time one day a week someone would get to play some music that they like while we studied or something and you know when it came my turn like uh like i put on pantera or slayer or something like that and people's reactions were so extreme like (laughs) they started screaming and made me turn it off within within 15 seconds <laughs> like people freaked the fuck out right it was kind of shocking that they reacted so harshly to it like they couldn't handle it and i'm not so sure that it's that bad now i don't know mm-hmm. not in high school and i'm like so in this culture that it's just normal but uh seeing and experiencing how people who don't get it react was kind of kind of amazing actually i know it's like because yeah like you said we're so in it so you don't see it that often because everyone you're around is also a fan so you get that outside perspective you're like whoa i've been in this for so long i kind of forgot how the outside person may react to this kind of music which is not well (laughs) yeah they usually but the thing is i've always tried to remain like open and be like okay i understand why you might not like it but i always try to you know follow that up with just try to take a little deeper listen because there may be more than meets the eye as far as that person is seeing. And there always is because it's such an amazing genre with, with so much talent and, and cool stuff in there. So, you know what I think it is in part, you know, like aside from the fact that a lot of people can't handle screaming vocals or the superficial things, I think a lot of people don't like that kind of energy. Like they don't want to feel that kind of intensity coming out of music. Like it, stresses them the fuck out it (laughs) it just they don't want to feel that and um in lots of ways they'll be that way about certain kinds of movies too yeah there's certain kinds of movies that are just too intense for people 
It's like a sensory overload for them. I mean, yeah. you, you have to think back, like obviously not, well, I don't know about you, uh, about you, Nick, because obviously you grew up with a parent that works at Fender. But with me, I grew up on like, my dad listened to classical music and my mum listened to everything from Santana to Herbie Hancock, Pink Floyd. But there was nothing really excessively heavy in the collection. So I remember the first moment that I really heard any heavy music. And I mean, I used to think Aerosmith was heavy. Like yeah. mm -hmm. when I was a kid, you know, that yeah, first time I, I heard that playing on Mrs. Doubtfire, you know, um, the song by Aerosmith, it's just, I just remember thinking, damn, that guitar tone sounds really disgusting. Yeah. And now by the standard of what I listen to now, that's like, you know, nothing. So imagine what it's like for someone that's never listened to heavy music and then you just throw decapitated in their face. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> From zero to 10, I know. Well, it's funny you say that too, because actually my my grandparents grew up and they met and married through Juilliard and they were classical pianists. And then my mother played piano as well. And then my dad was, you know, the one playing in bands and everything. So I felt that pull kind of coming. You know, I was younger and I was doing piano and the more kind of academic version of music you could say then all of a sudden you hear back in black and you're like oh what's that and that starts starts the uh the initial kind of tumble down the rabbit hole and then you know go from that to like i think the first time i was ever like this is heavy music was actually like uh meteora lincoln park i remember because i was probably 10 years old when that came out and that was the first time i heard like screaming and like down tune guitar kind of after that classic rock phase and i was like all right this is something so <laughs> it's interesting the metal community would often shit on bands like lincoln park and stuff but i think that bands like that are why first of all metal came back and why there are people into any of the extreme stuff at all like very few people start off with the extreme stuff and if they do what the hell is wrong with them? <laughs> How'd you get there, man? Hold on. Yes. Yeah. Something's got to be wired wrong <laughs> to uh, to start with uh, with Emperor or something. <laughs> right. Like that seems like a very natural progression, like a band like Linkin Park. Then you just go from there. Or I know Slipknot was it for a lot of people. Yep. Yeah. Earlier, like 10 years before that, it would be a band like Guns N' Roses, which then led to Metallica, which then led to Pantera, which then or Slayer, which then led to Morbid Angel. Right. And then you're in. Yeah, I know. Yeah, that's <laughs> what I'm saying. It's like, you got to have that Led Zeppelin start to get you all the way to Lamb of God and then beyond, you know? It's like, that's how I, and then it's good because I, you know, I end up loving, I, I still obviously love all that music. It's part of my youth and, you know, part of my fond memories of learning your basic chords and learning guitar. But I agree. It's like, I couldn't imagine just diving straight in. It's like diving in a you know pool of ice water. You listen to <laughs> extreme bands right off the bat. It's like, hold on. <laughs> I was in high school. How old was I? I would have been, what, 13, 14. And I had a friend, his name was Paul Lowe. I still talk to him occasionally, actually. And I remember he, it was just at a time when CD writers were coming out and he handed me a CD in the middle of school. And I could tell everyone was staring at him because, you know, he was like, he was like the metal kid in my school where everyone else was kind of listening to pop. And he gave me a CD and it had a mixture of Pantera, and a bunch of other stuff in that vein. And I'd never heard it before. Um, I remember jumping from like Nirvana to that. And I, yeah. at first I just thought, oh, this is absolutely disgusting. But then obviously <laughs> just needed, 
I just needed a little bit of, you know, <laughs> understanding of it. Right. Yeah. Right. I just remember hearing Primal Concrete Sledge. That'll do it. <laughs> That'll do it. <laughs> That'll definitely do it, won't it? Yeah. Yeah. I, well, yeah, it's cool. I mean, it's cool. It's it's cool to look back to and think about all the uh, all the phases you go through and you know, it's like, I think everyone has like a, I had my event sevenfold phase and that got me into like, you know, shred kind of guitar playing. Yeah. Cause Linkin Park, you know, they don't really have that. That's like, oh, this is heavy. But then you get into like, whoa, guitar harmonies and these long elaborate pieces and everything. And then you, you kind of move on from that. And, but you take a piece of it with you each time. And I think that's how you, you know, build up your influences and kind of who you are as a musician today. So the classical background, does that play any part in how you think musically or how you approach getting better at it or anything? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I, th I was just having this conversation with someone the other day and I was talking about like theory and, and how that pertains to rock and metal guitar playing. And I think it's, it's, it's important to have a, just a decent basis. I mean, you don't need to be, you know, the world's greatest, you know, theory guy or whatever, but I think it's good to have just that basic kind of knowledge so that you can work your way around a fretboard and just know what key you're in and that kind of thing. And occasionally, you know, I'll, you know, mess around with, you know, keyboards and stuff and, and working out chords that way. And I wouldn't say it directly, you know, I'm, I'm certainly going more off by ear and, and feeling, but I will kind of use, uh, you know, that background as a, a barrier. I like to think of it kind of like bumpers on the bowling alley, you know, it's like throw the ball down. It kind of bounces around, but I stay in the lane. I'm kind of like, you know, I know where I'm at and I know what's going to work based off that knowledge, but still just go off it by feel and and what what sounds good to me so what about the practice regimens like did those the practice regimens that i guess uh you got from that world did they transfer over at all yeah absolutely i mean i would say that like you know kind of like you mentioned even just the simple practice of going about things with a metronome has you know that came about when i was young and i've always been grateful i guess to have learned that so early on because i do see so many people that kind of struggle with timing and when you're playing especially metal and stuff like the subdivisions and the and the timing and the accents are so crucial and you know uh, growing up and reading traditional music and seeing where rests are placed and and uh that kind of thing has always helped me um you know with composing and whatnot and as far as just like actual practice and whatnot i think you know, I don't, I'm not saying I'm running through scales and, and doing that for two hours and whatnot. It's it's more so just the mindset of like being diligent, I guess, is what I really took away from it um, and digging deep and making sure that, you know, you're playing to the best of your ability and you're given, you know, that you're giving yourself that extra 1% each day or whatever it may be just to improve your playing and, and take the time to be serious about it. That's what I think the classical world has. They have that down, the science of getting really good at your instrument <laughs> so when i hear about these comparisons between metal and classical it bothers me because i don't think they're anything alike just when you come down to just the discipline the ba the base level of discipline that the musicians have is so much higher in classical and then also classical is in riff based like theme and variation you know all all these things are totally totally different about it but I think the thing that you can really, really take from that world is how to actually take your instrument seriously to get good at it. Exactly. I'm curious what you guys think on like, in terms of like the importance of theory, let's just say in metal, like 
What are your guys' thoughts on the importance of that? I have a, I feel like this conversation comes up a lot and everyone has a different take. So just curious. I think it's probably best that you understand the sound of the modes and scales. Like each of them has their own specific character, which can give you a blueprint in an understanding of where you need to go to create a certain environment that you, you know, you know, if you think about film music, for example, you know, when the character's happy, it's in a major key. When they're sad, it's a minor key. When it's like a question, it could be diminished or some one of the other weirder scales. Mm-hmm. You know, Lydian sounds like you're in outer space, a happy version of it. Yep. Unfinished. <laughs> uh, wrong. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think that that's probably the best thing to understand. Like when, when it comes to like keys, like I don't have perfect pitch, so... I can tell you where B flat is because it's what my guitar is tuned to, but that's probably about it. But I understand the intervals and the, the the sound of scales, which I think is probably the most beneficial thing about theory. Theory is just there to explain what you're doing and not define it. And I think that a lot of guitar players get stuck in that trap of playing up and down scales, playing within boxes, and then they struggle to really create with the information that they've been given because they're seeing it in the wrong light. So that's my take on theory, personally. Yeah, I agree. I I agree. So I don't remember if this was a URM or Riff Hard podcast. A few days ago, either we or I was talking (laughs) to somebody, man, we do so many of these, about theory, about the idea that it puts you in a box. And the person said, well, that's just a problem with their personality. That's not a problem with theory. Yeah, that was ours. And I totally, totally agree with that because there has never been a single time where getting better or understanding more ever hurt me as a musician. The only thing that ever hurt me when I was trying to write something was uh, not feeling not feeling good or pursuing a shitty idea or, you know, just a bad day or whatever. But I can't ever think of a time where expanding my knowledge of how music works was ever detrimental. And I agree with Brown. Really, the most important thing is uh, how you hear things. But all these guitar players who we've had on and that we know who say they don't know any theory, but they're fucking amazing, they do know it. Mm. They just don't know it with, with the same terminology that we do, but they know what works and what doesn't. Their ears are just, you know... They're, they have Olympic athlete ears. Right. But right. Um, that at the end of the day, that is the most important thing. But having a language with which to describe things to yourself or to other musicians is super, super helpful. But, you know, it never really influenced me as a writer or anything. Like, writing was always a feel thing. Like, does this feel awesome does it feel sick is it right like and then when picking notes or something like out of a harmony or whatever me personally i would never write out the chords and then be like these are the notes i have it would always be by ear but then when uh you know adding other instruments into the arrangement that i don't actually play or communicating it to the other guitar players shit like that Man, theory is so helpful. Yeah, absolutely. It's so, so helpful. Or as a producer, super fucking helpful. Like, I just can't think of any way that theory isn't helpful. If it's working you into a box, 
you're working yourself into a box. Right. I did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you think my guitar tune's so fucking stupid? <laughs> you figured a way out of that to where theory was not working you into a box. So again, that's your personality solving the problem for you. Well, I guess that's a good way to see it. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're the one who decided to change the tuning and you're the one who decided to put yourself in a situation where you had to use your ear. So that was it. That's, I think that's probably more what I'm getting at when it comes to theory. A lot of the time guitar players want to learn it at the beginning before they've really had the time to understand what they like about certain chords or certain, you know, like I've said this in a podcast before, I'm pretty sure of it, but let's just take Steve Vai and a lot of his music is based out of Lydian because he understands that, you know, he likes how that scale works. You know, a lot of, you'll find that with a lot of guitar players, they gravitate towards a certain sound. Mm -hmm. And I think that when theory was introduced to me at the age that I was, that I wasn't quite ready to really understand the information that was being given to me. Thus, I just run up and down position one, position two, with no real knowledge that all seven of the modes and then multiple scales are related and I only need to learn position one. I didn't even know that, right. you know? Um, so I think that that's what it was. I think it was maybe a bad explanation. Maybe it was, I think that's part of the, the problem that I have with theory is that everyone understands it slightly differently as well. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, for instance, modes. Yeah. I don't get the big deal about them. What do you mean? Okay, so all the major modes, like the typical ones, non-altered, they all sound identical to me. Like I know, you know, you're starting on a different degree of the scale, sure, and you can get a slightly different feel, but I'm I can still hear every single note that's in them and they sound identical to me. And so <laughs> to me, just learning the basics was enough to understand all of them. It just, I didn't understand the big deal, but I get it that for, that it's all in how you interpret these things. So for other people, it did make a lot of sense to study their modes. Right. And I, I feel like I'm even now just thinking about it more. It's like, I feel like I'm almost using theory in like a reverse way. And I guess what I mean by that is like, maybe I'll write something and I'm like, you know, I think we can all relate when you write something and it feels good, right? And you're you're bobbing your head and you want to listen mm -hmm. back to it because it's getting you excited and you're like, this is working. And then it's almost like I'm looking back at it and I'm like, then I'm thinking about the theory of it where it's like, okay, what am I, what did I just do here that felt good? And now let me yeah. kind of dissect it. And then you almost start to like uncover patterns and everything. And you're like, oh, when I, when I do this, I'm getting the feel I like, or when I, when I, you know, add in this, you know, accidental or whatever then i'm getting this kind of cool sound going on and then then you kind of add that into your repertoire or your arsenal yeah. and it's like then when you go back then you're empowered with that knowledge i like to like kind of go back and forth like that i think it's helpful so that's how i see it completely yeah. like i can't tell you one fucking chord that i play i i literally can't i can tell you what intervals are in that chord but i can't tell you what the chord is right um for the most part but i know that if i want to achieve a particular sound of a chord sequence then i know that i could explain it to someone mm -hmm. you know like yeah. i think the most you know the most popular chord sequence of six seven one in the minor key like you, everyone can hear that right now right all of us mm -hmm. like it's yeah. just the stereotypical metal chord sequence it's in everything but it's i think it's quite important to learn other ones so as you say you can add it to your repertoire like a uh almost like a dictionary or 
a bunch of different phrases. You know that if you want this situation, then you can take from that and maybe change some elements about it um, to make it more inclined with what you want to do in that moment. Yeah, and I, I love that you say that about the dictionary because I think about that a lot where it's like, you know, chords and these little pieces, it's kind of like you are looking at a dictionary and then, well, what do we do with the words in a dictionary? Well, we got to form a sentence and that's how we speak our, our truth and that's how we speak what we want to say. And it's like, I've always kind of approached riff writing like that, to be honest. It's like, you know, you can play the same note so many different ways. You can play it and yep. let it ring out. You can have it be short and staccato. You can have it kind of be that burpy type of thing. And it's like well, I'm just playing the same note, but now I have four options. And then instead of trying to be so crazy and go, you know, add in 10 million notes, maybe you only need four or five and a couple different octaves with a couple different right hand techniques. And you got yourself something maybe more memorable that still feels fun and exciting. It's a really cool way to look at it. Uh, that resonates with me. <laughs> just curious about something that um, this conversation made me think of. Something that a lot of musicians say that I just fundamentally disagree with like, I just, I don't like it, but so many people say it is you got to know the rules to break the rules. No, yeah, and, uh, I fucking hate it when people say that because what the hell rules are they even talking about in the first place? Yeah. Find me the rule book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's no rules. So like the way that we're describing theory is it's just a way to understand things better, communicate things better. It's a tool to use, but this idea of there being some rule book and then you're like a rebel who can break those rules doesn't make sense to me like at all. I'm just wondering how you feel about that. I feel like we're already breaking the rules with just playing metal in general. It's so wild and out Fair there. You know? It's like, so I, but I agree. It's like, I've never really thought about it that way either. I just think that like there's, there's more than meets the eye in like simplicity type of thing and, and just getting creative in like a different type of way. I just feel like there's a lot of people that are like, they see guitar and they're like, I gotta be crazy. I gotta be fast. And I'm like, I just, I just want to write something that's memorable and has an awesome groove and that someone can latch onto. And yeah. I think that's just the most important thing. It's like, if, if what I have to say is three or four notes, great. I'm good. I'm not going to leave it at that. I just want it to sound awesome. I'm not concerned that it doesn't have 27 notes. You know what I mean? It's just like, yeah, yeah. I just want to speak my truth and I'm good with whatever that whatever that means. Those four or five notes that you're talking about, it always brings me back to Hans Zimmer. The first time I saw Interstellar in the cinema and No Time for Caution, the bit where he's spinning the spaceship mm -hmm. and the music at that point, it's only a couple of notes, you know? Yep. But I mean, for me, it just made me fucking almost burst out crying when I heard it because it was explained that situation so perfectly more so than shredding 10,000 notes in a second going as fast as possible. So I just want to say how much that resonates with me when it comes to writing. I totally agree. <laughs> yeah, it's it's important. And I mean, even to go off on another tangent, just movie music in general, I find it be so inspiring for for riff writing and, and coming up with ideas and stuff. It's so cool because like, I don't know, I grew up listening to like soundtracks and all that kind of thing. And I find that like, because it's not so traditional or it's like, intro verse chorus vocals type of thing like it lends itself to being you know we have themes and motifs as opposed to those other more traditional things and i just find uh, some of the chord movements and stuff to be so awesome and actually translate really well into metal when you put it through distorted guitar and some you know but it's not quite so out there like orchestral music where nothing repeats right and it's just like some amorphous mass that lasts for 45 <laughs> minutes where <laughs> 
I mean, I have a ton of respect for orchestral music. Like, I actually think that there's a huge crossover between soundtrack stuff and metal, not with orchestral, traditional orchestral. It depends, really. Like, if you think about symphonies and the preludes, preludes often give you the main themes of the symphony, right? Right. So it's not really too far away when it's. Yeah, and then they never play it again. <laughs> so maybe so. it is kind of like death metal where it's just like riff 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 maybe play the first riff at the end of the song you're done yeah there is actually structure i remember learning this when i was in high school and there is structure to a lot of you know that orchestral music but it's not, no i know i'm i'm fucking around there's I know, like abac or whatever you know <laughs> well, it's like, I don't know if you guys, you guys know uh, Ludwig van Gorenson or Ludwig Gorenson, maybe? I, maybe yes. I'm butchering. Yes. So he He's did. great. Yeah. He did uh, Mandalorian and then that uh, Christopher Nolan film Tenant. And it's like, I'm listening to these soundtracks and it's like, I don't know. And maybe it's the Mandalorian one. I, I guess like. I'm like hearing these patterns he's doing with this modular synth stuff. It sounds like Meshuggah. It sounds like a crazy kick. I think that's ten, Tenet you're talking about is the one that sounds like Meshuggah. And I saw an interview with him and he's got, you know, guitar in his hand. And it's like, it's just so cool. I think there's totally crossover. And it's like for the average person, again, that's just watching the movie or TV show just to hear it. They're like, whoa, this is crazy. But for someone like, you know, me or you guys, it's like you hear these resemblances to these crazy like kick drum patterns and stuff. And you're like, this is so badass. Like, it's just so I love hearing that crossover in such a different type of way. Yeah. There's also some of the things that happen in soundtrack music. The way they move chords around is totally not by the book, like with, you know, just moving minor chords around, for instance, because it sounds cool, but uh, doesn't, you know, you would fail a theory test if you started doing <laughs> that. But then you hear a Demu Borgir song where they're doing that and there's an orchestra and it sounds like Star Wars. Yep. I think another good example of that actually is the soundtrack to the original Planet of the Apes from the 50s. I don't know if you guys remember that soundtrack, but it's just chaos. I was too young. I got to go back. I'm I'm so young too, but there's one particular scene, it's the fight scene from the uh from that particular soundtrack and it is absolute chaos and it's like piano with like a half an orchestra or something and you know, by traditional standards, it would almost be like, you know, traditionalists would be looking like it's John Zorn or something, you know. Um, but it's so well done just because instead of thinking of it in a traditional setting, they've written and composed the music based on the timbre of the instruments rather than thinking this is the traditional. And I think that's what I love about soundtrack music is the fact that it's never really seen in a traditional way. It's like, how can I describe this moment perfectly? What do I need? Right. You know that in the traditional classical world, they don't consider soundtrack music real music. Of course they don't. No, for real. Really? Why do they say that? I can just tell you my dad's view on it. (laughs) (laughs) He's a conductor. Uh, He always thought of it as too simplistic, like primitive in comparison. I understand. I mean, he he will recognize that there's some great themes out there, recognizable themes and stuff, but he considers it more like uh, light music i guess (laughs) i don't agree with him but uh he's not the only classical musician i've met who sees it that way they just don't see it like uh like the real thing or something they see it like some diet version yeah yeah i know (laughs) i think that that happens a lot with guitar players as well like just as a a timeline you know when we were all younger we all wanted to shred right oh yeah a little bit yeah 
So you get like, there's a certain point after X amount of years where you either grow out of really wanting to do that and then start taking the approach of wanting to write songs as opposed to just working out what's the best guitar solo that I can do. Yet some people, you know, go past that point and continue to do it, maybe get great at it, maybe don't. But I kind of feel like the the classical world is kind of like that, where the people that also learn their classical instruments branch off and you get the people that are doing the soundtrack music and then you get the people that just want to be tested to every possible extreme that they can. Mm-hmm. And that's what they're listening out for. They're listening for who's going to fuck my brain to pieces for lack of a better word. Well, you know what I mean? Well, think about it. Your typical classical musician, professional. Yeah. They can sight read in real time. They sight read everything. They play some incredibly difficult shit like the Rite of Spring or a Mahler symphony or whatever, which is just insane to play. Yeah. And then they'll go do a session, same orchestra for a movie soundtrack where they're playing one note for like five minutes or like the same theme over and over and over and over. And there's four notes in it. And, uh, and from their perspective, it's like kindergarten, right? Which in my opinion, that's not the right way to look at it because mm-hmm. you're missing the point. But from their perspective, it's just kind of like a cog in a machine. Uh, they're not challenged at all to do that stuff. That's the problem though, isn't it? Like they're not listening to what the final product is trying to really portray. Right, um, right. Because that's, I think that's the difference here. It's like, it's the understanding, the separation between the two. Yes, there's a place in the world to see the Rite of Spring. It's one of the best pieces of music ever, in my opinion, you know? But at the same time- it's fucking insane. Oh yeah, it's absolutely incredible. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, so's those four notes that Hans Zimmer played during No Time for Caution. <laughs> well, I, I agree with you. You know, a classical piece that somehow has become part of the repertoire, which breaks their rules, is uh, The Planets. Interesting. I don't understand why that one is cool. Like, why are they okay with that? Because that one is it's nine movements, I believe. They're all like three minutes long. They have repeating themes, kind of like songs. Like, it's basically a, a pre-soundtrack soundtrack. Yeah. And for some reason, they're okay with the planets. Is that Holst? Yes, Holst Yeah, yeah Gustav, yeah. 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 I mean, just listen to Mars, Bringer of War. Like, it's metal as fuck. And uh, super repetitive. Like, I don't, I don't get why that passed, you know, passed quality control. That one slipped through the cracks. I know it's always had its, its own... <laughs> It's always lived on its own terms. It's like, uh, what's that song where it's just like three minutes of silence? You know, I'm, I can't remember who did it. Uh, John Cage. I'm guessing that's not accepted. <laughs> it's four minutes and 33 seconds of silence. It's seen more like uh, modern art. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, where like it's more about the idea of it. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, it's such, such weird yeah. rules, isn't it? Like yeah. in the classical world. Like, so bizarre. I know, it's so interesting. But, but there's certainly really cool crossover with metal, and I think, um, yeah, I, I totally agree. You know, it's like the soundtrack stuff. The finished product is everything. I mean, I'm just always looking for what invokes emotion in me and what's going to make the hair on the back of my neck stand up and make me feel like, wow, that's powerful. And I really just don't care necessarily what 
it is that makes me feel that way. Like I'm not, yeah. it's just, if it does, it does. And if it doesn't, it doesn't, you know? So it's a good gauge right there. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of soundtracky stuff, you guys do some soundtracky stuff. It's always been a part of uh, boo. Yeah. Yep. When you guys are working on that element, is it written into like the DNA of the song uh, from the beginning? Or is it something that happens after like where in the process is that? I would say it's it's for for the band is it's I would say it's written into the DNA of the song because it's a core element. I think some bands take more of a backseat approach to that type of thing with uh, maybe the electronic elements or or the you know sometimes it's more ear candy, but for us it's more of a forefront element. I, I think some of the songs are uh, built around some of the synth lines and and some of the uh, kind of more modern production esque techniques and like. There's uh, a lot of moments on the new album where we're kind of bringing back like some of those kind of, I don't know, hip hop-y kind of inter- intros and outros sort of thing. And then we have uh, kind of just a, a new flair, I guess you could say. We've been doing a lot of layers and, and electronic kind of stuff going on to kind of enhance the songs, but without taking away the integrity of the core of the band. So I kind of think that's kind of where we're at with it right now. I feel like the... Uh... I don't want to call it extra instrumentation because it's always been part of the sound, but I was kind of expecting you to, to say that just um, because it doesn't sound like an afterthought. I mean, it's real clear that there's lots of parts where the guitar is definitely an accompaniment where I think that the afterthought bands, the guitar where they fuck up in my opinion is that the guitar is never an accompaniment uh, to the other stuff. And so it makes it really difficult to arrange right. and mix. Um, you guys have figured out when the guitar needs to be the spotlight and when it's just an accompaniment. Right. They understand when the guitar needs to fuck off. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's funny for me too, because like, you know, coming into the band and like, you know, I've been a fan of the band since I was young and you know, I think so many people feel that way. There's, you know, talk about the new rain and all that kind of thing. And it's like, for me, I was just a fan as well. And then I kind of felt like I was learning as I was growing up from like Lee and Cameron who've written the songs for forever and kind of like, you know, taking a page out of their book. And then it was so interesting. Cause it's like, instead of being like, Oh, I think what boo does is cool. Let me implement that into my music. I'm like, okay, well now I'm a part of the band. So it's like, Instead of being like, let me try to steer it away, it's like almost like I could take what they had showed me over the over the course of a decade and like put it back into the band with my own spin on it. And now we have this really kind of cool thing going on where it's like we're all contributing and we're all a part of it. And it's like it's just a full circle kind of feeling, I guess you could say. I think where bands go wrong when they bring in new people or where the new people go wrong or both mm-hmm. yeah. Uh is when the uh, when it seems like there's no real effort for the new player to integrate properly into what's already been established. And it just kind of it becomes more about just the way that that new player writes. And you can hear it a lot. And I feel like it's a weird, it's like a weird shift often. In general, I feel like that's one of the main reasons for why people are weird about new members because it doesn't something's something's off but it's not always the case and i think that in cases where it is successful the new guy or girl went about it kind of the way that you're 
describing of not making it about them, but making it about the band and using what the band has already established as the basis for their contributions. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting also because I came into the band playing bass, which I've never been a bass player. I mean, um, you know, I just, I always consider myself a guitar player and the circumstances that, uh, came about were that I would come in and, and, and start on bass and looking back now, uh, transitioning over to guitar, which is my certain main instrument. It's like, I'm almost grateful for that. Cause it gave me a, a, a new perspective and a, and a refreshing kind of thing where it's like, well, I'm just here to, to take on a role that I haven't before. And it was like, this is cool. I get to serve the song. I get to be tight with Cameron and, and, and think about like the low end and the punchiness of the band and doing a couple tours with them before we really got into the swing of writing and everything. It was like, I was thinking about that and I was like, man, I'm actually, this was awesome because it gave me, I felt like I got a really good insight into the way that the, the band had written uh, the previous material. And I had like a kind of a crash course and I felt empowered with, with knowledge from a new perspective, again, through playing bass. And uh, that was, gave me a, a fresh way to go about things when it came time to really get into the swing of writing things. So I, I am curious about that, what you just said, how it gave you, a different perspective than it would have. I mean, obviously it's a different perspective because it's a different instrument. Right. Like, so, but aside from the, that, like the superficial level of, yeah, it's a different instrument. What do you think it like actually helped you understand differently than if you had joined as a guitar player? Um, because I think like coming in as a guitar player, it would have been like immediately like the task of working out all the harmonies and, and that kind of thing, which is, in my wheelhouse that's something i'm familiar with but instead i was i was uh taking more of the okay i haven't really played bass like this in a band before and so how am i going to take what i do on guitar and and kind of put it back into bass as opposed to having a kind of glass half empty mindset saying oh this isn't my instrument and whatever i'll just i'll just play it the way things are and whatever i'll play guitar later i just never wanted to go about it that way i saw it more of as a learning thing and, and because i was able to take some of my guitar playing skills and implement them into maybe spicing up some of the bass parts live and having fun with it then i was able to kind of pull that back out and be like oh man what i was doing on bass there was cool and that because I even the simple thing of like I had less strings, it gave me more like creative, uh, you know, a sort of, well, I have less, but I'm approaching it like guitar. So what am I going to do to stay creative here? And, and just how can I make this feel like me, even though it's not my my totally normal thing, so to speak? So you could have spoken to Buddy's Veil and then you could have had more. <laughs> with there a seven go. string yeah. bass you right? know i'm, yeah, I'm only kidding I sorry <laughs> yeah, i just get a couple more on there i know that was an option but i don't know just yeah i ended up going the uh just picking up the regular old four string and it was a cool experience man i really enjoyed it i you know it, and now i'm so this happy fun. to come around yeah it's so fun man it, it was it was just sick like even the 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 basic level of it just feeling that thunder you're like, I, I didn't get to create that before. I just play guitar. You're like, now I, now I understand that, that exciting aspect say it. of it. So. I'm going to say it. Bass is better than guitar. I'm saying it right now. <laughs> yeah. I think that guitar players often forget just how important the bass is in a metal band. It's literally the drive. And when you're listening to a record, most of the time you're probably hearing the bass 
unless it's injustice for all. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you're not hearing but, it there. <laughs> you're not hearing it there, but yeah. yeah, I think that like, you know, everyone says, oh, that guitar tone's fucking sick. And it's probably like at least 50% bass. Right. Yeah. Cause it's handling all that, that grit. Grind. And, you know. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the hidden weapon, I think, when it comes to metal. In mixing, too, a great guitar tone requires a sick bass tone. Like, there's there's no way around it. Man, any time that I had to play bass for people's records, um, which was a lot, it was fun as shit. Yeah, man. Yep. It's great. It's great. It's, like, sick, too, because, like, live and stuff, I'd, like, kind of hone in on, like, elements that I wouldn't really be able to on guitar and i guess what i mean by that is like there's a couple songs where like joe had some really cool keyboard lines and stuff and i was like kind of would you know listen in to a little closer what he was doing and i would like match him up on bass and just kind of like you know guitar player i'm i you know you're occupied you 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 got the lead part you got the the rhythm part you're kind of doing what you do and obviously i love that but it was just a really fun experimental phase like coming into a band kind of how you were saying if you come in as a guitar player, people have expectations, right? They want to hear the songs that they know. They want to hear the parts played. And like bass gave me this way to kind of get in there and be creative. But since it wasn't guitar, it was kind of a little more under the radar. I felt like I was having fun without throwing it way out into left field. So did it help with your rhythm playing at all? Absolutely. Even in like the, the physicality of just the instrument being bigger and heavier strings. I think I remember even thinking after the first tour, like coming home and playing guitar, I was like, this thing feels like a damn toothpick now. <laughs> so, yeah. Do you feel like uh, you had to play harder? With bass? Definitely. And uh, I remember initially having the thought, am I going to approach this with the more traditional finger method or am I going to approach it with a pick? And I just went with the pick because, you know. Good. Yeah. (laughs) It just makes sense, you know. It's like, especially for the style. And uh, I felt like I was digging in. I felt like it really helped. If we come back to the very first thing we talked about when we first started the uh, podcast here, it's like with the right hand strength and the muscle memory, it pushed that along even farther. And, uh you know, some of those songs are intense, some of those older songs, and there's these wild, crazy rhythms, and it just put me in this, like, headspace of, because I wasn't really, you know, playing, I had a previous band, I've always played metal since I was young, but I had certainly been taking taking a good break from it, so it wasn't, like, even that alone, the break, and then it being bass, and then going into guitar, it was, like, a really nice trajectory of events to kind of, like, very gradual, nice, fresh, creative flow to lead back up to the ultimate writing of a, of a new record, which the one that's, that's, that'll be the one that's coming out in a couple of weeks here. So where do you think guitar players tend to go wrong when they end up playing bass? Cause you know, a lot of bands, that's not an uncommon situation for a guitar player mm-hmm. to play bass in a metal band, but typically they fuck it up. I would say I, I didn't ever want to sell myself short on on the things I had accomplished on guitar and, and bringing that to the table. I think if you take it to black and white where you're like, okay, well, I play guitar and things are a little fancier there. And for bass, it just needs to be super basic and dumb it down. I don't necessarily think that's the right way to approach it. I think it's better to like say, all right, well, I know the role that bass plays and I need to be aware of that and, and serve what's important here. But... I can add a little extra flair and be myself and inject some of who I am as a guitar player into bass. I think that is a healthy combination and lets lets you have fun and in the process uh, kind of spices things up a bit. So, I think that's a good way to look at it. And also what I was thinking was the 
area where they tend to fuck it up is not playing hard enough. Yeah, absolutely. You're right. I mean, you got to kind of, you got to say, I got to go a little bit harder here because this is the beef, you know? Typically when I've recorded bands where the guitar player plays bass, they play so lightly that it just sounds like shit. Yeah. It literally sounds like shit. Right. <laughs> I know. It's like, get a, you need a two millimeter pick and you got to dig in, man. Let's, let's be real here. <laughs> Two mil pick. Yeah. What the hell? <laughs> no, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> that's aggressive. That, that's extreme. Yeah. Get away with a one. Okay, so let's talk about picks. How much of a difference does that make to you with uh, tone and ability? Like what pick you're using? And do you use different picks? Like do you interchange them? Like what's your uh, stance? I've always been very basic kind of run of the mill, so to speak. I've just like Dunlop, millimeter with the grip on them and that's about it and i think you know i've dabbled with the jazz stuff and then the medium kind of things i mean i certainly think for metal it's like if you're playing with thin i just i don't know you gotta dig in i can't really i can't really see the application there and if someone does then more power to them all good but for me it's just like i just think solid solid pick yeah millimeter and dig in and it just comes down to the player i mean i see these you know i see these things where people do these custom fancy picks and they got these crazy you know things where it's th really thick at the at the where you hold it and then it comes down to this point and all that and i'm like yeah hey, that's cool i've tried it all but i'm just like is that the defining thing about your playing i don't know maybe for some people but for me i'm just like no it's in my hands man and so i just go with what's basic and what i've grown up with so what role do you think uh gear plays when it comes to how you sound because you just said it's in your hands more so than in the pick what about the externals like you've got that sick ass evh yeah. behind you yeah and i saw it i saw it in the playthrough mm -hmm. you just put out and you know we love gear as metal players but uh i'm just curious how important you think it is in terms of tone i mean i certainly think it's crucial and i i'm a total gearhead i mean I know, Brown, I see your amazing collection there behind you. And, you know, you got tons of <laughs> awesome heads and guitars and, and gear and all this kind of thing. And I love that sort of thing. And I'm all about it. And I think it's it's certainly crucial. And I think you find what works for you and you find, um, you know, there's certainly things out there that don't sound great. But it's like I was even teaching someone a lesson the other day and they had a little Fender Champion 20, the most standard practice amp you've ever seen. And I picked it up and I was playing through it. I was like, Things sounds pretty damn good, man. And like, yeah, it's like, I'm not going to use that on tour or whatever, but I'm like, hey, it's fine. And I think like there's the kind of collector kind of tone searching mindset. And then there's the like kind of more almost player mindset where I sort of toy between those, to be honest. I'll, I'll find where I'm in phases where I'm like tone seeking. Oh, what about this cab and this head and then this modeler and these combinations? And then I'll, I'll find it. And then I go into, the, I'm like, this sounds phenomenal. I'm happy and I'm playing and I'm practicing. And then I kind of balance between those. So it's quite funny how that changes day to day. Now, yeah, yeah, you probably right. see that on tour as well. Like obviously one day you put plug in your head in your cab and it sounds absolutely fucking ripping right. and you're really stoked because it sounds so great. And then the next day comes and it sounds like fucking shit. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> like, you know, you're just a different stage, a different venue. And it's like, this sounded great yesterday. Why does it sound so shit today? And I think that's part of the problem when it comes to tone searching and constantly trying to find the best one is that your ears play such a big part on it. 
you know, even if you've just got a cold or like you've got tour aids or something. <laughs> yeah, I know. Right. Well, it's, it's crazy too. Cause like, I feel like I, you know, I, I maybe you guys have kind of gone through a similar phase. I think a lot of guitar players, especially in this genre did where it's like, okay, we all grew up, we have our heads and cabs and then the modeler thing comes around and you're like, Oh, this is so easy. It's convenient. It sounds great. And then the plug-in thing has become a lot more popular, which is awesome and super convenient for recording. But it's like, I just, this head behind me, like I have a Axe 3 here and I was playing that for forever and I was running that through, you know, the preamp section of the head and, and going that route. And then I switched back over to like a four cable type of deal where I'm just using the effects from the fractal and I'm using the actual tone from the head. And I've been stuck on that for forever, man, because I'm just like, I feel like I'm getting the best of both worlds where I got these incredible high quality digital effects, but I'm getting that true tube amp tone and, and through a cab and... I'm like almost back to that where I'm just like, man, I'm moving air again and this feels amazing. And that's what guitar is about. It's just so powerful. Now, I don't know that I feel like I have a line in a cage here because I'm just in my house and I can't turn this thing up. I'm going to blow the neighborhood up. But <laughs> <laughs> but hey, you know, I love it. I love it. And I, I turn up when I can when when no one wants to kill me. So <laughs> you, know what's, you know what's quite funny to me, right? We're obviously we play in metal bands, extreme metal bands. And so, you know, metal is about being pissed off. And when someone's plugging into the PA with an axe effects, you can, especially in a small venue, you can really, really tell the difference between that cab and the modeler when it's going through the PA, because mm -hmm. it's missing a lot of the information. If you think about a small stage with a small PA, a lot of it is just replicating what's coming from the stage and amplifying certain bits to make a mix. Right. Whereas, yeah, with the, you know, modeler route, it's a lot more difficult to come and do that. So it doesn't actually come across as pissed off anymore. Mm -hmm. When I, I when I see bands that that do that on small it's more pristine than pissed. Yeah. Depends on the PA. <laughs> well I know well, yeah. it, it makes people's lives easier. And I mean you don't you know you're taking away lugging things around and maybe the sound guy can get a cleaner mix for you and everything. But I don't know man. I just I've gone through the phases and I'm just Every time I turn, like, if I play through a plugin, I'll maybe, and I'm I'm jamming, I'm not recording, I'm, I'm like a practice kind of session. Now, if I play through a plugin, I find myself stopping playing and practicing far sooner than when I'm plugged into the rig back here, because it's just inspiring. Like, I feel like it speaks yeah. back to me. Interesting. So the fun element is more there with the tube amp. Didn't you find that as well, Al? Like, yes, absolutely. Like, like the thing, the good thing about a tube amp is there's only six controls on it, so it's really hard to fuck it up. Well, if you don't, if you don't have a Bogner or something, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, you know, even on a Bogner though, you've got your channel. Maybe like there's three preamp pre EQ switches and maybe a different mode boost or something. But what I'm saying is, is that I can't play with the SAG, the bias, going through millions of IRs to find the right cab, and then you know, there's there's only so much you can do on each individual head. The sound that you get is kind of the sound that you'll have to deal with. I, I couldn't agree with that more, man, because it's like, you know, I've been down that rabbit hole so much where you're looking at the parameters on some of these modelers. And I'm like, at first you're like, well, it was so cool. I'll try this and I'll turn this and everything. But then you're like, I haven't even been playing guitar. I've just been tinkering around with these knobs. I don't really know where I'm getting. <laughs> or on the EVH, I'm like, hey, I got my basic EQ. I got three channels. They all sound great. And I got my effects. It's like, I, I almost had to tell myself at one point when I was just still in the modeler phase, I was like, just, just look at it. Like, you know, 
you would a regular rig because that's what it's doing, right? It's modeling after a regular rig. It's like I have a head, a cab, and maybe a couple pedals or some rack effects. I don't know if I'm going to sit there with my regular rig and, yeah, like you said, tinker with the bias and, and, and try out all these different crazy things. It's like that can almost be more detrimental after a while than just... When you're limited, it can be a beautiful thing sometimes, I guess is the simple way to put it. I think one of the big problems with the modelers is that people will spend a long time making things different but not better. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> Basically. Do you know what's funny about a modeler? Like, It just came to me just as uh, Nick was talking about it there. It's kind of like an amp manufacturer has given you all the components to an amp and say, hey, here you go. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> and it's, that's kind of like daunting if you think about it, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, they do model certain amps, but they give you so much control over what defines certain elements that makes that amp that amp. It, it's just too much choice. Like, I, I never play around with the SAG control or the bias control, and I rarely even change the IR because I know that the moment that I fall into that trap, it's ongoing and I won't play my instrument. Right, right. That's what I'm saying. It's like, it's, and I even noticed, I think I had a Axe 2 for a while and then I got the X 3 and I think I noticed on there that they even created like a, I don't know what they call it, classic mode or something where it's like, they only give you the couple regular controls that we're kind of talking about that would come on a regular head or whatever, because I'm sure other people have shared the same where they're like, I'm getting caught in this rabbit hole and I'm looking at all these things and I don't even know if I necessarily know what they mean. I'm just turning and turning and that's what happens, you know, you're making it different and is it better? I don't know. You've been in this rabbit hole for three hours now. Maybe it's time to play. <laughs> well, one of the things you mentioned that I think is really important to identify is the difference between a collector mindset and a player mindset. And not that there's anything wrong with being a collector. Like if you enjoy collecting gear, cool, yep. whatever. But I think it's important to understand that they're not the same thing. I think there's this term called action faking where uh, people will do things to that will give them this false sense of making progress. Kind of like, you know, uh, in an office environment, lots of times people will see clearing their inbox, for instance, or organizing their inboxes, like getting shit done. And it's kind of not. <laughs> I think that collecting gear can fall into that category too if what you want to do is get sick get badass you spend more of your time on tone hunting and collecting you're kind of fooling yourself now if it's a conscious thing and it's what you like doing and there's a reason you're doing it fine whatever but i think it's important to be aware of the difference yeah definitely and i think it's fine yeah like you said to to switch around like i find myself Maybe I'll go through a phase where I'll oh, try this, try that. And then you find it. And like I said, this what I've got rigged up here I've had for, I don't know, last three, four months. And I have no intent to go back down that road for now. I'm just enjoying playing and it sounds great. And it's like, because I think about it and I, I'm like, okay, so I have a clean channel. I got a mid gain channel. I got a high gain channel. I'm covered. They all sound great. And then I got the axe effects with a couple effects and I switch them out here and there cool just like i would with some pedals i'm like i think that's good i'm i just want to play i'm having fun it should be that simple in my opinion yeah and it took me a while to kind of come back to that i was for, for sure kind of you know going down that trap for a bit and uh maybe it kind of takes going down that to realize it sometimes so it does so you know one thing that i've realized in production at least 
is if you're not dialing a tone in with guitars, like in 15 to 30 minutes, you're not getting it. Something's wrong. Like, and I've been a part of records where we spent 10 days trying to get the right tone and then on rhythms and then always ended up going back to the first one. Anyways, <laughs> I've just noticed that past a certain point, you're not making things better. And yeah, if you can't, if you're not getting it quickly, like I said, 15 to 30 minutes, something's up. So maybe it's the wrong guitar. Maybe you suck at the riff. Maybe you need to pick a different head or something, but it should be quick. Like Brown, remember when we did that creative live course? Yeah, I was about to mention that. Yeah, so. Yeah, that's a perfect example. So yeah, Nick, have you seen that creative live course where Monuments records a track? I don't know if I've seen that specific one. I'm not sure. So anyway, like I, at the time I was endorsed by Mesa Boogie and I still think the dual rectifier is a phenomenal amp. The problem with them is, is that the when you put a mic in front of them, it's pretty drastically different to where, what it sounds like in the room. Mm-hmm. Not in a bad way. I think it just requires a lot more to really capture the dual rec. And, you know, you can hear it on Nickelback records. It sounds amazing. But it just wasn't working out that day. Everything about it sounded wrong. Um, so what happened is we wasted that day and then came back the next day and Al had managed to get my, probably my least favorite amp on earth into the studio sorry <laughs> it's all right i bought i bought one anyway now because it's uh i know that it records so easy but yeah got a 5150 and that was from was it from morgan who was the guy you got it from mm. he's uh he, he's he's pretty big in the trap world now isn't he morgoth oh mr morgoth beats yes that's the one yeah he he saved our ass nice. brought a 5150 and plugged it in didn't even move the fucking mics and guess what it sounded fucking yeah, great his name is mike montoya by the way he's a great fucking guy which one the 5153 the, the one that i got back here or the no the block pv one? um still phenomenal man I, they both are unique and i love them both yeah but it was so quick that's the thing yeah you lit we literally turned it on put the controls to mm. 666 you know because the metal Oh, yeah. (laughs) Dude, we spent 12 hours the previous day. Yeah, and within five minutes. Yeah, it sucked. It's 2021 now. We've, like I said, we've been through the modelers. We we have the plugins. We got it all. What are you guys seeing? Are you guys seeing a resurgence in in, in traditional more amp cab setups, I guess, as far as recording goes? And or are you seeing it more go towards a digital world? I'm, I'm curious. So what I'm noticing through... URM and everyone we talk to, uh, you know, through the podcast or now the mix or whatever. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you're talking about guitar players right now or producers. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I first, I immediately thought producers and mixers because they're as divided about it as guitar players are. I have noticed that the modeling technology has gotten so good. Like the plugins now, the the amp plugins now are so badass compared to how they used to be right that a lot of people who were traditionalists it's not like they're going to sell off all their heads and get rid of their cab rooms but they use them less right now the thing is i have not met a single badass metal mixer producer who says that there's no need for them anymore mm-hmm. it's just now they actually see the ant modelers as a legitimate option whereas before it was not a legitimate option now it is so yeah just because of that there will be less two amps but i don't think they're ever going away i do think though that the 
younger generation that have grown up as bedroom musicians and producers who grew up with plugins. Like that's what they know. That's the thing for them. I think it's going to be a little harder to have them transition over to tube amps. Yeah. And they're used to the convenience of a plugin. That sounds sick. Yeah. So I think that a lot of players who came from the tube amp world and then went to modelers are going back to tube amps, but I don't know. Like, I don't think they're dying out or anything like that. It's kind of like vinyl, isn't it? Kind of like vinyl. Yeah, kind of in a way. But also, like, the weirdest thing for me is this has actually happened numerous times is that we've played with a couple of bands that have never plugged into a tube amp. And this started happening, what, seven years ago? Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Like, people that just grew up in this environment. That's crazy. Yeah. That's crazy. <laughs> it's crazy, isn't it? <laughs> I just can't even like picture like not I can picture trying a plugin and and thinking about does cuz that's like when I think about a plugin or a modeler I'm immediately thinking well how is this going to compare to the real thing as opposed to plugging it in and just saying this is guitar tone so to speak. Yeah, but to them that is the real thing cuz that's what they grew up with. I know that yeah. Which is so wild. That's just, I'm not, I can't, it's hard for me to relate, but I see it. I obviously, it's becoming more and more of a thing. Cause yeah, as, as the, as time goes on, those are more kind of in the forefront and okay, let's think about the young kid. He wants to get into producing and what, and he's and whatnot. And he's in his bedroom and his, his dad's going to say, Oh, get the $200 plug. And we need to buy you a $2,000 head that you can't even turn up. It totally makes sense. It's just crazy to see the shift. Like just yeah. think about that $2,000, like what you could physically buy with that money to start recording yourself in your room. Right. You right. can buy the plugin, you can buy the interface, you can buy the speakers, you can buy the drum samples, you can buy Reaper, mm-hmm. Rip. Um, <laughs> um, you can and, evaluate Reaper. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and um, you can buy all of the components that you need to start creating songs. So... At that point, why wouldn't you? Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, you can make the money get you right into the pocket of now I can create. Whereas if you get the head for $2,000, you're like, well, now I need the cab and now I can't turn it up. And now I still need all the other gear because I I need a mic because I I have this thing back here. But I'll be the first to admit that I'm only like reamping through it type of thing. I'm not cranking this thing up with a with a a mic and, and doing it traditional and. And I wish I could. I just don't have the uh, the setup for that at the current moment. But it's like, yeah, you you see the limitations. I guess like I almost enjoy having it though as a strictly playing rig. I think that sometimes there's a pressure that comes on if you're talking about practicing and just playing and enjoying your instrument. I think sometimes there's a pressure that kind of mounts when you are playing through a plugin and you're looking at your uh, Pro Tools or Cubase or whatever it may be, and you're oh, like, oh yes, you're like I got to start writing. Whereas yep. if I'm not plugged into any of that, and I'm just playing. I don't really get that pressure. I'm just I'm just playing. So yeah, I've kind of embraced Dude, that. I I completely relate to that. In fact, most of the time that I write, I do not do it in this room. Okay. So like obviously like you know you you've seen the room. There's guitars everywhere. There's amps everywhere. There's studio equipment. And you think it's like the perfect environment to write music in, but this far from the far from that because the moment that I sit at this desk there's a certain mindset especially when Cubase opened that that's what I've got to do so at that point it doesn't become it's not a choice for me to write it's already been established whereas right. 
if I take my guitar home where I don't have a guitar, where I don't have an amp, where I can't record myself, the likelihood that I'm going to write something that's sick is greatly increased because I know that I can't record it down. Right. Which is, it's quite interesting that, that getting outside of where you usually write is a good way to write music. In fact, I sent AL a track the other day that I'd been working on and that... It's pretty badass. It was written on my sofa in my living room with my guitar at two o'clock in the morning. And I had no way to record it other than to get the idea down with a phone. So it's quite interesting that you say that because I think that that's a really good way to get inspired by having a setup where you go, you can just rehearse or practice or write and you don't have the stress of a computer that's, you know, all these colorful tracks and you're being forced into doing something that maybe isn't the most practical use of time. Yeah, I really agree. It's like you would think, yeah, sitting down in front of your nice spread out monitors and looking at all that stuff would be inspiring. But and it can be, no doubt. But it can I definitely th- be inspiring. Yeah, but then there's times where maybe not. And I think it's it's important to recognize that because it's like environment and change of environment is so crucial for me, at least to um, you know come up with fresh ideas and everything. And that's one of the things that um you know the record that we did was was written and recorded just prior to covid and i've still been writing through covid and everything but it's it's been more lulls than i've ever experienced only because i i just thrive off of travel and and meeting new people and 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 seeing new places and even subconsciously i think those things really influence it's just the push and pull of oh okay i haven't been at my studio so now i'm excited to go back there whereas i'm sitting here every single day now it's felt a little stale. You know what I mean? Like, yep. so absolutely. By the way, I just thought of something <laughs> in response to what you asked like 10 minutes ago, but I just thought of it. You asked if there's a resurgence, right? Mm-hmm. One of the things that I noticed was that, yeah, guys that started with two amps and then moved to modelers kind of like go back, go, going back to their roots. Right. However, I've noticed the opposite too. Um, people that started in, uh, in an all digital environment as they got better started to think well i gotta get like tube amps and like real preamps and shit like be real and then they end up going back to modelers and stuff like that it's weird so this resurgence thing or going back to what you're used to i think is more of a human nature thing than than anything to do with tube amps or digital technology or anything like that. I think that's just what people do. Right, right, right. This is grass is greener idea. (laughs) And then they go back to what they're comfortable with. Right. You want what you don't have. And then, yeah. Yeah. And then you realize it's just you making music. Yes. Yeah, definitely. I think probably the biggest, the biggest one here is does anyone really matter or care what my guitar tone sounds like when it's, when there's a drummer playing 320 beats per minute kick drums. (laughs) and I'm playing that, you know, or something like that. I think that that's what it comes down to, isn't it? So for a lot of people, they'll go through the stages of, oh, maybe they'll try our model or go back to a tube amp or vice versa. But if it works and they change just for something different, but then find out they just want to go back, then there's nothing wrong with that either. I like how you started that question. Does anyone really matter? And I was thinking you were just going to end it there. (laughs) That's perfect. We can actually, we can can end (laughs) it there. No, nobody really matters. (laughs) Right. (laughs) That sounds like Metallica's new, the Black Album 2. Yeah. <laughs> Instead of nothing else matters, no one really matters. No one matters. No one does man. matter. <laughs> I like the Metal Sucks uh, 
column that's called everyone's replaceable. It kind of, it kind of goes along my philosophy of nobody cares. And now you, you just said nobody matters. I'm good with that. I agree with it. <laughs> well, that just took a dark turn. I know. I mean, you, know, that gonna, you guys matter to me. You guys are crazy. You, ma- you matter. <laughs> so what's your plan for touring? Like, how's that looking? Uh, just a couple of days ago, we had a conversation with our booking agent. And, you know, it's been interesting, I think, for obviously every artist that's touring. And kind of like when this all started, it was like, oh, it'll just we'll be back. And I've always known that. But it's kind of like now it's been so long and you see how things kind of shift and change. And now every band is kind of, you know, clamoring and they all want to get back out there. Of course, we all do. And so it's been uh interesting because as the pandemic has certainly gotten better at least where i'm at i don't know how things are every separate section of the world but um you know it's like what is the exact timeline of things and how do we stagger this and how do we play to our strengths with our record coming out and i know we're going to do a a a couple shows coming up here soon and then we talked about like a headliner and maybe making it over to uh you know uk europe and all that it's more so just when how do we fit all those things in with kind of everyone chopping at the bit to get back out there so that's actually one of the things that i think is is going to be one of the biggest problems when everything does return the absolute saturation that is going to happen where you know people have been furloughed people have lost their jobs and everyone's not going to be able to afford to go to everything kind of what was happening anyway a little bit where bands would be playing like the same town four or five times a year right and i think it's going to i think it's probably going to be quite smart to wait a little bit longer mm-hmm. rather yeah. than trying to get on the first surgeons just wait a little bit yeah you know, that's my that that's what i think is probably the best idea anyway Yeah, it just feels so crazy. I mean, it's like being away from it for so long. It's like, you know, I think everyone's had their own personal thoughts and and struggles or or they, you know, found something that they never thought they would find through through all this time where life has just shifted around. And, you know, it's like every person that's a part of this huge equation, whether you're, you know, the artist or booking agent, promoter, uh, security, venue owner, all these people, it's like all of a sudden your world just got flipped upside down. It's like a tidal wave just came in and now it's kind of like everyone's standing up and looking around and, and saying, what what structures still stood and, and, and what do we rebuild and, and what needs to be you know done in a new way and what is still going to work? And all these questions that you didn't really know what questions there were going to be when it all hit. And now they only become clear as things start to come back in a, in a very interesting way. It's like, I see so many flyers. I see Slipknot and Killswitch Engage going on tour and stuff, but none of it has happened yet. So it's still like this weird, like, I think everyone's sort of crossing their fingers, but it feels better than ever. I don't know. It, it's a weird time where I think we're right in the kind of calm before the storm sort of moment. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Well, there's one more topic I want to talk to you about. Yeah. So you joined a band that was already established. Mm-hmm. And I know that there's a lot of, musicians out there who would like to do something like that or you know maybe they want to do their own band but they want to also possibly do that um how does someone go about putting themselves into that uh scenario in the first place where that could even possibly happen number one and uh what do you think uh are the 
I guess the basic requirements for being able to hang in a situation like that? So I would say that for me and what I've experienced and finding myself in this scenario and, you know, being in this genre and touring for years and everything. And the most important thing when it really boils down to is you got to be solid and you got to have integrity and you got to know how to be a team player. I think those things are so crucial because if you come into someone's camp and you come into someone's home that they've been living in or, or their business, their livelihood that they've been running and they have their ways for a decade plus and you want to come in there and you want to just blow things up and do it your own way. That's not going to go over well, even if you have good ideas and even if, um, you know, what you want to bring to the table, you think is going to elevate the the project or the business coming into it with kind of like, you know, a aggressive way. I just don't think it's going to go over well because people are used to the things that they have done and the ways that they've been doing things. And like, that's why I, uh, even going back to that kind of like bass thing, it was a really nice gradual progression, becoming comfortable um, with the band and, and becoming comfortable with all the different personalities and slowly introducing, hey, I have this idea here and hey, I have this song that might work and, and building it up and not just kind of kicking the door down and just being honest and being pure and true and, and also loving what you do and being there for the right reasons, I would say it really all boils down to those kind of basic human elements. Yeah. When you're getting into a scenario where something is already established or even if it hasn't been 10 years, even if it's only been two years, but it established before you were around and it's working, you know, it's not a, you know, it's not a failure. Like it's doing all right. There's a reason for why it works. Like there are no accidents in business or in music, in my opinion, like, Every now and again, some people get lucky, but sticking around, that's not an accident. Um, so there's a reason for why things work. And as a newcomer, uh, you're not going to immediately understand all those things. So it's it, it's not just uh, rude to come in and try to like make it your show. It's also stupid because you don't totally understand the nuance of the situation and what it is about what they do that makes them successful. And you need to understand that before you can really start interjecting yourself, in my opinion. I agree. And I think people sometimes forget, like it sounds kind of funny to say, but I really do think people forget sometimes that bands are made up of human beings that have emotions and that have things that happen outside of the band and outside of the music that they put out. And those things play into having a group of people that can come together and work on something uh, for years to come that has a lot of challenges and logistical challenges and emotional challenges and sacrifices and all that kind of thing. So if you can't weigh those things and, and understand that they um, are a big part of what you're going to come into in anything, I think that you're kind of shooting yourself in the foot because it's like, it's not just a, a logo and a record and some songs. There's people behind this, and that's very important to recognize as you're coming into something that's been established, or even if it's new, because everyone has past experiences and things they bring to the table as people. So I think it's just crucial to recognize that sort of thing. What about musically? Uh, musically, you're saying in terms of coming in and becoming a part of it? Yeah, like say you get offered an audition for a signed band. Mm -hmm. You've never been in a signed band before, or 
you just want to be able to one day do that. And when it, when you get the opportunity, you want to be ready. Right. Or you got the opportunity and you got the gig and you don't want to get fired on the first day. Yeah. So I would say just kind of have all your ducks in a row as far as your gear. I mean, you know, it doesn't have to be anything crazy, but if you know your gear and, and you're a pro about your stuff and come prepared, um, come well rehearsed. And if you are going to be in a scenario where you are just kind of uh, more of a, a fill-in type thing, let's say you're just going to be playing already established music, then learn those songs inside and out and play them rock solid. If it's going to progress more to a thing where you're going to be contributing musically, I would say, again, just a gradual sort of speaking an idea here and there, seeing how other people react to it, seeing if it works, if it, if, if it gets to the point where it's going to be released or if fans are hearing it. Um, I don't know, man. I, I read the comments. I read what people say because those are the people that are making this livelihood possible. And I'm not saying that I'm just going to, you know, go left and right for, for every fan out there, but I do want to see the general consensus. I mean, it, does, it can be broad. Is it working? Do people like it or is it, is it, is it not? And I think just kind of understanding that that kind of thing and being open and letting you put your ideas in and then having other people bounce them back off you and kind of working your way up until you get to something that everyone's happy with. So, you know, if your goal is to get to a point where um, you can be a contributor, that's not everybody's goal. Right. Like some people just want to be a live player or whatever, but say that the goal is if you do it as a fill in and you're hoping that you get offered a spot in the band and eventually get to write. Um, the people I know who have pulled that off and eventually become like a co-writer in the band without fail, they played the shit out of the parts that they were given to play for a long time. By a long time, I mean like a couple tours or three tours or something like that, but like enough to where everybody felt super confident in their ability. Like they felt like that person's ability to do what was already established was without question. Right. Basically. And, and then from there, people will be more open. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's a difference for sure between having confidence and then being arrogant. Right. Yes. So you want to come in and you want to be confident in your abilities. And, and I would say the best way to put it is be confident in yourself that you can be a team player don't be coming in saying I'm confident that I'm the guy and I'm the one that's going to change everything or I'm going to write the best songs ever. I just think that's such a poor mindset. It's like be confident that you can come in and be a part of what's going on and, and elevate it together as a group. A band is a group of people. It's not one guy. So yeah, there's more than there's more to being in a band than just writing the music as well. Yeah, it's like, hey, can you survive with me? Are you going to be cool with me, you know, waking up next to you every single day? Can you can you deal with me that way? Because if we write great songs together, but we can't stand each other, well, then I don't know how long can this go on? So you got to be got to be friends too. some bands. I don't know if they're all friends, you know, <laughs> I, I want to be friends with my bandmates and want to hang out with them. And that contributes. It bleeds into the music, whether people think it or not, because then you're excited. You're just happier, more excited and Leads, leads to better things overall and in, in all aspects of your life so i think that's a good place to uh end the episode yeah absolutely yeah nick i want to thank you for taking the time to uh hang out with us yes thank you el and brown i appreciate you guys so much thanks for having me on it's been a pleasure absolutely great chats man you guys too so 
Do you focus on your strengths or your weaknesses generally? It's kind of a mixture of both. If something gets too weak, then when it inevitably comes up, you're going to suck at it and then you're going to have to spend more time trying to get it back up to the standard that it was maybe at. Obviously, there's certain things which I can do better than other things. I know that I don't really want to play a guitar solo with uh, sweet picking and stuff like that, but it has actually come up. There's actually a sweep in one monument song, if you can believe it. (laughs) Well, okay. So I think about certain things like finger picking or something. It might come up and there's people who utilize it. Sure. But say you suck at it and you have no interest in it. It's a weakness. Should you work on that or work on your down picking or something? I would say work on your down picking. Like say if you're a sick ass rhythm player, you have no interest in finger picking, you suck at it. Yeah. Go with your strengths. But if there's parts of the repertoire that require you to be good at certain things that you're not good at, then that's, I think that's a different, I think that's what the understanding comes to. I think it's like, as long as you can do the basics of kind of everything, a little bit of hybrid picking here, a little bit of economy picking, a little bit of, alternate picking. And when that situation comes up, when you're going to need that style of picking, then you've got the basics down and it's just about perfecting it. If that's what you mean by, if you're not, you know, finger style picking, if maybe you're not interested in it, but just having a little bit of it there might come in useful when it comes to writing. And then you can work on it in that moment rather than having not really any part of it in your repertoire. It's just another tool, isn't it? Absolutely. It's, uh, it's a tool, but we are limited in the time we have every day and on earth. I think we need to be selective about what we spend our time on. Oh, for sure. So yeah, we need to have a wide variety of tools, but the right ones, the right ones. And there's nothing wrong with something that you're not interested in that maybe has been completely forgotten about. But if, as long as you, you know, if you even put in just a basic amount of time at the beginning, then it'll still be there somewhere. (laughs) A little bit of it, you know, like I've got no interest in learning any gypsy jazz particularly. So I know that I'm not going to even attempt it, but I know that once upon a time, I, I learned most of drifting by Andy McKee. And technically I'm probably not going to ever incorporate that style, but I know that maybe one time I want to do something like that, that it's there. Yeah. It kind of goes to what I was saying earlier about there's no time ever where learning more music theory or expanding my knowledge ever hurt me. No. And I kind of see what you just said along those lines, like how can getting better ever hurt? Like it can't, but it's just, there's some things that are a detour. Yes. Some detours are the scenic route and that's great. (laughs) <laughs> but some just add a bunch of time and are a pain in the ass and yeah. don't give you anything uh, worth it, uh, in my opinion. You just have to be selective about this shit is all. Yeah, exactly. I mean, just as an example of that, like I know I can tap with up to two fingers. What's the likelihood that I'm ever going to need to tap with all eight of my fingers? Probably nil. But Probably me- nil. But the mechanics are there. So if it ever did come up, I could probably learn to do it in a faster period of time, just because I have the tapping repertoire, even if it's only with two fingers. And I think that that's what I mean when I'm saying, as long as you've got a basic understanding of certain elements that maybe might not be completely of interest to you, then it's there. 
and you can just build on it from that point rather than starting from completely from scratch. Like, can you imagine trying to start sweet picking again completely from scratch? It'd be awful, wouldn't it? Yeah. Like, uh, you mean start from scratch as in ground zero? Like, I have no idea how this works at all. Yes, exactly. Versus I've not played this in 10 years but I know how it works. And when it comes down to it, I can do it. I just need to maybe oh, slow yeah. it down a little bit. And then option B for sure. Like I know that if I decided to play guitar, I could sit down for a month or six weeks and be probably better. Yep. And have all those things back because I had learned them at some point. Exactly. Starting from zero. I don't think I could do that. You know, if I was just, if I decided to pick up the drums tomorrow. <laughs> I don't think I could be at any professional level within six weeks. No, but guitar, you've obviously, you did it for what, 20 years? Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. So it's all there. I mean, obviously in 10 years time, it might be completely gone, but you'll still understand it because the basics are there. You know how it works. And I think that that's, yeah. I think that's the most important part that to get down rather than actually maybe just practicing it every day and taking away from strengths. But I think that understanding the basics, like, yeah, you know, economy picking, alternate picking, hybrid picking, maybe some finger stuff and maybe some of the tapping and sweep stuff, just basic understanding of all of it and then focus on strengths. And then when it does come up, then you can put the time in then and there as you need it. So oh, it's uh, the idea that I'm getting is, it's good to be a specialist, but a well-rounded specialist. I wouldn't say I'm a well-rounded specialist. I can't sweet pick for shit. No, I think <laughs> you're a well-rounded specialist. You know how to engineer. You know how to play bass. You know several different things on guitar. You have the thing that you're like really, really, that you really, really excel at, but you can do a bunch of different things. That's I. That's what I would call a well-rounded specialist. But it was all came about from situations where it needed to, that's what I'm saying. It's situations where it needed to happen. The yeah. reason, you know, why I had to do bass on records is the situation required it. The same with learning to engineer and to, to mix is because we didn't have a budget. So it's like I had to learn to do that. <laughs> how do I get the demos down? I again had to learn how to do it. And it was, it wasn't, I mean, I, I don't consider myself a good mixing engineer by any means. It was a necessity. So that's what I'm saying when it's best to know what you need to know, maybe learn a little bit extra. And then as it comes up, the knowledge is already there. And it's a case of working on it in that moment. Well, it's kind of like uh, there's a skill set for being a metal guitar player, a professional metal guitar player that involves, like we've talked about, some recording, got to have like a great right hand. Yeah. You know, shit like that. Um, do you have to be as good as Will Putney at engineering and mixing? No. Nope. But should you be good enough to make your demos at least sound pretty banging? Yes. And, uh, you know, be able to record things on your own if you don't have a budget yet and all that. Like, even if uh, you only have a budget for a mixer, but you don't have a full budget, should you be able to record guitars well enough to hand it off to yep. someone like will yes but you don't have to be as good as will no nope i you should be, be really good at down picking though yeah i've got that i got that i got that in the book well uh, well if i practice 
more this week, then it will stay. How long does it take for it to go away for you? I want to say between one and three weeks somewhere. Damn, son. For me, it was like four days. Well, it depends, really, because with your music, it was constantly probably at the threshold of your ability, right? Yes, that's a good way to put it. Especially if it was like a 45 minute to a one hour set. It was like, it was relentless, right? Yes. So I think that that's the difference here. Like, yeah, it's relentless in what we do, but there's still breaks for it. So obviously I've not played a Monument song in over a year now. And I know that when I do go to play it, it is going to be like, why didn't I practice this um, beforehand? But within a week, it will come back. It's just a case of, you know, as long as I'm playing at least every other day and I'm writing, then it keeps its power, if that makes sense. Yeah, but I think that it's that's because you built up the power over the years. Yes, exactly. But obviously it is a perishable skill. So it's just a case of, understanding that that you know when it comes to the faster monument shit that it's probably going to just take a couple of dates but nothing that i'm particularly worried about you know the time when it start starting to worry is when i reach the age of 45 to 50 and my muscles <laughs> decide they don't want to do that anymore so before a doth tour like say that several months went by i would start down picking practice two weeks before our rehearsals. Yeah, that's smart. Yeah. Like down picking the songs, just down picking for like 30 minutes a day. Like, because the times I didn't, I felt like such a fucking chode. We'd start <laughs> playing and I just couldn't keep up. I know what you mean. Pick. Yeah. And eventually I could keep up after like a week, but fuck showing up to a gig or a rehearsal and not being able to hang, it's a terrible feeling. You don't want to be that guy. It's a terrible feeling. Or girl. No. The weirdest thing for me, though, actually, is I find the practicing in the rehearsal room a lot easier than practicing to the record because Mike has a particularly relaxed feel when it comes to playing drums. So sometimes it actually feels slower than what I've practiced it at, which is a good place to be because then you're not hitting that threshold of your ability. It wasn't that way with Kevin. I can imagine that Kevin was, uh, was he kind of like pushing the beat? So we played a lot to a click, which was an ass saver. And we actually, for some songs, we lowered the click by five BPM from the record, <laughs> sometimes 10. Not because yeah. it, not because we couldn't play it, but because it felt better. Yes. Like it felt like it was on fucking Coke on the record. Like it just, <laughs> it just grooved better. But if we didn't play with a click, like say that the computer died at the show or we hadn't finished the click tracks for that set. Yeah. It'd get fucking fast as shit. Yep. He's not behind the beat. He's one of those ahead drummers, like yep. like a super technical Joey Jordison or something. Yeah. Like, uh, it's it's really interesting how the drummer really defines what it feels like. And the example of this is when we had we had Alex Rudinger filling in for us on one tour when Mike was injured. And we've obviously had a noop, Lango, and obviously back to Mike again. And the the difference between the same set of BPM on my right hand is drastic between those four drummers. So obviously Rudy, he's on the beat and it's like exact, you know, and all of the songs felt faster and it made my right hand. He, he has 
a little bit of that frenetic energy about him too. Yes. And not it, it wasn't ahead of the beat. It's just no. that it's really precise. It's real precise, but he's a very, let's say, energetic dude. <laughs> it comes out in his playing. I think, it definitely too. does. Yeah. And then you go all the way back to Mike, who is by far the one that's the furthest behind the beat. And the the, the change is drastic. Like it, it feels like a completely different song to my right hand. It's really weird. And that's all playing at the same BPM. You know what we did on our last record to make it feel better? Go on. We tracked everything and we didn't really edit. But one thing we did do, because we used the kick pad, we could do this. Um, we slid the kicks forward in time. And what that means is to the left on the screen. Yeah. So that everything else, but by some milliseconds only. Yeah. But but they're by putting everything else slightly behind the beat. And uh, for the entire record, it made such a difference. It's amazing, isn't it? What five yeah. milliseconds can do. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, even if everything is super fucking tight, that one little difference in feel can make yeah. all the all the difference. I mean, obviously, AR, you've played to program drums a lot. Mm-hmm. And at that point, the guitar kind of defines the feel because obviously the program drums are just so tight to the grid unless obviously you want to go down that rabbit hole of trying to make it sound like a real drummer. But often or not, like the guitar in that situation defines how it grooves. Well, not not with uh, program drums in my band. With program drums in my band, I would do shit like, like I just said, like displace the kicks by some so that it would be behind the beat. You have more patience than me. I mean, it's just one little <laughs> setting to do an entire song like that. That's very true. But that's, uh, I just thought about how to do that. It's really simple, but you've still got more patience than me. Well, it's because <laughs> I rush. I'm not, I'm not like you. I don't have like the groove in my soul. I had to really, really work at any sort of groove. So did I believe it or not. You've just got more talent for it then or no. something. No, 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 no. I think it's yes. just a case of understanding. I think that like you can teach anyone to groove. It's just that you can't teach them it. They have to find it. Yeah. That- but within that, I just think you have more of an aptitude for it, which you just Maybe. have an uncanny aptitude for it. But yeah, because of that, because I knew that I have this tendency to rush when I'd play to a drum machine, I would do what I could to make the drum machine program drums be more relaxed so that I could at least play to that and it would help me get better at it because good point. really really visualize where the snare is hitting and really really try to lock in with that with your right hand if it's behind the beat it will help you it will help yep. your groove there's also other things I did to improve my ability to play behind the beat or in the pocket um, you know practice shit with just the metronome on two and four yeah, that's really good for that. Yeah, it it is a little bit disconcerting and discombobulating <laughs> at first. Yeah. Um, but once you get used to it, uh, it really, really improves your ability to stay in the pocket. It does. In fact, actually, we used to do this thing in re- that you just reminded me by by saying that that in um, fell silent rehearsals. This is going way back now. Um, 2004 to 2006-ish time. One thing that we used to do was we'd play a riff in its entirety and then we would have silence for the length of that riff and see if we all came back at the same time. 
to see if we were all and how did how did it work for the most part it actually was all right you know like we were quite lucky like the drummer of fell silent was like a human drum machine like it was always like we never played to a metronome in that band like it was all live so it was like an experiment just for us to be on the same page in terms of feel but exercises like that like only having the metronome one and three and two and four um or even trying to count you know based on what you've just heard i think those exercises are really good for understanding music because then you start internalizing a metronome yeah totally um it's you're right you can learn how to groove Mm -hmm. but it can't be taught you're you're absolutely right you have to do how exercises like that and develop it within yourself how can you like yeah i mean how can you teach someone to groove i mean my definition of groove is probably different to someone else but once you get it it it's well it's great isn't it (laughs) it is i don't understand how you would be able to teach that to you know anyone like how do you say like other than play after the snares hit like it doesn't really help because what does that mean like finding the pocket what does that mean it's really difficult to explain to someone what the feel is you know yeah i've heard people like give like technical definitions of what pocket is you know but it's one of those things okay so i feel like it's so nuanced and it's so subtle that there's no amount of words that can actually properly describe it in a way that will help um kind of like the way that um, I've said this on the URM podcast a lot. Uh, when amazing mixers start talking about how great outboard summing is or super expensive converters are, they're not lying. They, yeah. But the thing is, these amazing mixers are competing for that last half a percent of quality, you know, yeah. because they, with their skills, got it to 99.5%. <laughs> and they're looking for things that can give them that extra little little something. But when they talk about it, they talk about it like it's this huge deal. And people who don't know anything and can't hear the difference then start to act like it's a big deal. But they actually can't understand it because the only way to understand the difference it makes is to have your hearing so refined that that last little bit does make a difference. And... uh it's kind of like trying to explain pocket, play behind the beat to somebody. Like it is actually true. You can say what that is, but to actually do it, yeah, you just gotta feel it. It's it's quite interesting. It's like it's almost like that. You know, when a mother says to you, "Oh, you'll find out when you're older." It's kind of like that. <laughs> the pocket is that you, you'll find out when you're older, because that's what it requires. It just requires time. Once you've played with enough people and heard enough music, you'll understand what pocket is. Unless you listen to exclusively death metal, then you'll understand what pushing is. <laughs> Which is just a different type of pocket. Yeah, it really is. Now that said, you should get good at down picking. You definitely should. Yeah, just to kind of emphasize something that he was talking about in this episode. He was talking about how much power he was getting out of it and how it ultimately helped him feel his riffs a lot better and feel them the right way. Yep. And I actually think that down picking does help your pocket. Yes, 100%. Yeah, I think that when you when people do alternate picking, it makes them kind of lazy. And I 
I've probably said this in a previous podcast too, but I always compare it to the two feet on a drummer and the leading foot will always be strong. And then the, the other foot kind of goes off track. It's slightly softer being hit. And it also isn't completely on the grit. It kind of, you kind of get, you kind of get the galloping horse effect a little bit. I'm sure, you know, anyone that has a drummer in a band or plays drums or even has heard recorded drums has, has probably seen that visually and audibly. And that's kind of how I always felt about alternate picking that it's very, very difficult to get that level of consistency and power, maybe because of how the string is vibrating, or maybe it's because you've got to change hand position a lot more drastically to go between down and up where it doesn't feel completely natural. But with going down, you leave your hand in one position and it's almost like just like a cam and it's just going, you know, at the strings, you're getting all this power. And the most important thing about it for me is, is that it really defined the separation of the notes, which in turn gives it more power because you're going from note to silence, note to silence, almost as if you're cutting an audio track. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I kind of have nothing else to add because you explained <laughs> that so well. Thank you very much. I mean, obviously yeah. I, I still need a noise gate, but not very hard, just a, just a little bit, you know? Just a little. A little goes a long <laughs> way if you know what you're doing. Exactly, yes. So obviously go to riffhard.com. There's the downpicking gym. can learn how to become uh, a monster of the downpicking, get better with timing, find out what the pocket is, and yeah. Right, sick riffs. Right, sick riffs. All right, Brown, it's been a pleasure. I'll see you next week, mate. Sounds good. Thanks for listening to the Riff Hard Podcast. We'll see you next week.